0: welcome to the laser therapy institute weekly podcast the world's first podcast about medical laser therapy for healthcare providers each week we discuss the latest research interviews with experts and how laser therapy can enhance your practice now here is the founder of lti and your host dr jason roundtree welcome back to the laser therapy institute podcast my name is jason roundtree i'm a chiropractor and certified medical laser safety officer And if you've joined us for any amount of time, you know that we like to go over research. We also like to talk with experts in the field of photobiomodulation. And so that is why I am so pleased to be able to welcome Dr. Michael Hamblin to the podcast today. And Dr. Hamblin is probably the world's leading photobiomodulation researcher. He's had more than 200 published studies out there. And if you've never heard of him, well, you've probably just not been doing your homework. So uh, Dr. Hamblin received his Ph.D. from Trent University in England. He was a principal investigator at the Wellman Center for Photomedicine, Massachusetts General Hospital, and an associate professor at Harvard Medical School for 25 years. He is now a distinguished visiting professor at the University of Johannesburg, and he has published over 750 peer-reviewed articles, 35 tech- textbooks. He is the editor-in-chief of the journal Photobiomodulation, Photomedicine, and Laser Surgery, and is associate editor for 10 additional journals with more than 75,000 citations. So when it comes to photobiomodulation, laser therapy research, he is the man you want to talk to. It probably doesn't surprise you then that I'm just really thrilled to have him on today's episode. So Dr. Hamblin, thank you so much for joining me and welcome to the podcast.
1: Okay, well, thank you for inviting me, Jason, and thank you for the introduction. (laughs) We'll see what I can contribute to your podcast.
0: Well, thank you, sir. You've already contributed so much to this field that uh, we certainly would not be where we are today without your steady work in this field. So uh, one thing that I was hoping we could cover is uh, an editorial you wrote recently. Of course, you know, you're a complete expert in how photobiomodulation works and in a lot of the research has been done out there, but you addressed a question in this editorial that I thought was just so perfect for those of us who are trying to work in this space. And that's a question of, you know, if photobiomodulation works so well, if it's so great, why isn't everyone doing it? And I get that question from patients. I get that question from other practitioners. And that is exactly what this editorial you wrote, uh, which we'll link to in the comments there. Um, But that's exactly what you kind of tackled head on. You know, why isn't it a mainstream treatment? Why aren't there more people doing it? You know, we've got thousands of studies on PBM and uh, that have been published at this point. There's hundreds more being published every year. And, and most of these studies are showing benefits of photobiomodulation. So, you know, why aren't we there yet?
1: Well, like, like all good questions, Jason, uh, this one will have several parts of the answer. Um, mm-hmm. But I think, you know, one reason is when you go back to the history of photobiomodulation, and how it started, which was sort of back in the 60s when lasers were discovered and people found that lasers did something fairly interesting in terms of wound healing, um, pain, inflammation, hair regrowth. And at those days, they thought there was something magic about laser beams. And they didn't quite know what it was, but everybody talked about laser therapy. In fact, you have a laser therapy institute, which is obviously (laughs) from those days way back when. Um, So laser therapists started shining laser beams on all sorts of pathologies, and and by and large did a lot of good. Um, But because they thought there was something magic about lasers, rather than understanding the fundamental photobiology, there was also a lot of negative studies because probably the laser beams were way too weak, and some of the laser beams were way too strong. Um, And then, you know, Come the 1990s and LEDs start to be discovered. And fairly rapidly, people discovered that LEDs were way easier to use than lasers. There was no, uh, you're a laser safety officer, so you understand that there are some problems with laser beams in terms of eye safety and other, other regulations. But LEDs yes. do not suffer from these drawbacks and they're a lot cheaper, and you can get a lot more power out of them. Um, Over a much larger body surface area because laser beams tend to be focused. Um, So, you know, there's a lot of history about photobiomodulation using lasers and less using LEDs, but LEDs are starting to take over. Now, why isn't it accepted by the medical uh, community at large? Well, you know, these are the days of evidence-based medicine, so everything has to have randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trials, which are very expensive to run. Um, so the companies that are making photobiomodulation devices, whether these be lasers or LEDs, are relatively small companies, and they don't have the financial backing to run these expensive uh, placebo-controlled randomized trials. So they they tend to be people using it for therapists and chiropractors and and these sort of folks. And of course, in, in America, the FDA has rules that prohibit you from making medical claims unless you do these trials. Because the FDA has accepted that LED devices are generally safe, It doesn't stop companies selling them, but they can't claim to do medical therapy with them. That's the big deal. And since they don't have the money to do the trials, this has led to a sort of stasis in the field. I mean, there are some companies that are doing trials, and because we all know photobiomodulation works, you expect that well-designed trials will be successful. you know, we've gone from the days when people just shone a laser beam and hope for the best, and we understand what we're doing in terms of wavelength, power density, energy density, total energy. So now you can design a trial relatively rapidly, and it should work. Um, you know, Another point here is that modulation has sort of been put into the alternative and complementary medicine class because people did not understand the cellular and molecular mechanisms until relatively recently. So mm-hmm. a lot of people thought, oh, this is junk science. This is sort of no scientific mechanisms underpinning this. And yeah, this is still a problem, See, big pharmaceutical companies pumping billions of dollars into trials of drugs and a lot of these drugs even if they're effective are relatively small benefits compared to what you can get with light and people find this difficult to accept they say oh you've got (laughs) Pfizer and Merck spending billions and billions on drugs and there's this little itty-bitty com- company with a few LEDs. Come on, you must be joking. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, it does sound wild. It does sound, uh, you know, just crazy to a lot of people, especially uh, physicians that I speak with that haven't maybe heard of light therapy. Um, you know, it, it doesn't. It, it's immediately written off uh, just at the first blush. Even if you say, well, well, here's a here's a group of studies, or here's a you know a good systematic review about you know a light therapy for low back pain for instance and ah yeah whatever you know it's easy to move on from that and and uh to, to rate this into the alternative and i think a part of that too exactly like you're saying we've seen a lot of a- adoption of light therapy by um, medical spas or chiropractors or physios and much less on the traditional medicine side
1: which which is because in, in order for you know to make a medical claim, you have to have evidence-based results from trials. And these are just very expensive to run. Um, you know, and, and companies are raising money to run them. Um, you know, for a sort of dread diseases, shall we say, you know, things like Alzheimer's or uh, age-related macular degeneration, adult blindness. Um, You know, these are serious diseases that do not have accepted pharmaceutical treatments. So these are the ones where the companies are starting to raise the money to do trials in.
0: I think that's really exciting to see, um, because, like you said, there's not really an accepted treatment, and it's um, to find a way forward with light therapy would be just thrilling, and and especially when it comes to things like transcranial photobiomodulation for. Uh, the neurodegenerative diseases. Um, What you bring up in your editorial is, you know, we've been measuring dosage at the external level, where we're talking about joules per centimeter squared, it's been that way for decades, you know, you know, better than I do. That's what we've been looking at. But you start talking in this editorial about, we need to do this differently, we need to actually measure the light dose at the target tissues. And that that's different. Can can you kind of Tell us a little bit more about that. Why is it different to measure at the external, like at the skin surface, joules per centimeter squared versus uh, the internal dose delivery?
1: Well, I may well have written that, actually. I mean, I don't know how long ago it was, but I must say (laughs) since then, I have gradually started to realize that there is a much more pronounced systemic effect of photobiomodulation than most people think. So people in the field are obsessed with dosimetry and tissue optics, and they like to measure, as you say, how much light goes from the surface down to the target tissue, how much is scattered, how much is absorbed, how much is diffusely reflected, and and all these things. I'm not saying that these are irrelevant. I'm sure that the dosimetry parameters are relevant, but I'm becoming increasingly um, certain that there is a major systemic effect. So if you put light onto tissue, there is blood circulating in the tissue, and there are elements in the blood, whether they be cells or cell-free mitochondria or other things that absorb the light and take messages around the body. Um, Part of it is to do with stem cells. For instance, whenever you shine light on the body, there are some bones in the tissue and there's bone marrow in the bones and stem cells get mobilized, progenitor cells. Um, a lot of signaling goes on from mitochondria in, in the blood. Um, and I think this has been not particularly well realized until relatively recently. So I'm not gonna say that dosimetry is irrelevant. Um, <laughs> But um, you know, like for instance, whole-body light beds have started to become available. They put quite large amounts of red near-infrared energy into the body. Um, you know, a million joules of energy is not unreasonable in a whole-body light bed, which is a lot of joules.
0: <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, and I, you know, you're talking about. That systemic effect, it was only, I think, a couple of years ago that um, we had a paper published about, um, not we, I say we, um, but there was a paper published about cell-free mitochondria circulating in the blood that were respiratory uh, active and patent. And the amount of signaling that we know mitochondria can perform is, of course, huge. And what effect those circulating free mitochondria might have, we, we still don't really know, but that certainly could tie into this systemic effect. And I think if you've done photobiomodulation in the field as a clinician, you've seen this, you've worked on somebody's knee pain, for example, and you've seen drastic changes in other areas too, and it just doesn't really make sense unless you accept that there has to be some level of systemic effect, not just where you put the light, how you put the light, even what Uh, the dosimetry is necessarily but this systemic effect has to take place
1: and also you know little intranasal leds you clip inside the nose or little wrist ones you put on your wrist they do stuff You, you, you know you would think wow it's a few milliwatts how can this possibly do anything but they actually do do
0: something it's pretty exciting really it's pretty exciting so maybe we don't need to look so much at the external dosing or the the internal dosing, um, but really trying to maybe develop more of a individualized route for the patient. Or are we looking at more of a global, you know, kind of more general rules and guidelines that we can lean into as clinicians to try and get success through photobiomodulation?
1: Yeah, I mean, that, that, I think that's a... Re- a major question that is still unanswered. So, for instance, some people want to implant light LEDs inside the body or put fiber optics inside the body, especially they talk about into the brain. But, you know, this is like invasive procedure to implant something in the brain. Um, And, you know, other parts of the body, it's clear, could be benefited I've heard it by a modulation, such as the heart after a heart attack. Um, you know, in laboratory animals, it's fairly easy to demonstrate that, but you, you're probably not gonna do open chest surgery on a human just to shine light on his heart. Right. So people, oh, well, yeah, we can implant things. And, and the Russians put fiber optics through the, the femoral artery and advance it to the heart and even the brain, actually. And that, mm. and that seems to work um, so I think there's you a know, big question, how important will invasive delivery of light into the body be? Mm-hmm. Could you not just do the same thing with a whole body light bed and okay, you deliver a lot more joules, but you know the room, light is basically cheap from LEDs um, so it's not clear to me that you need high tech invasive uh, fiber optics coupled to lasers but you know maybe there's room for both of these approaches
0: that's pretty interesting do you, what do you think about the use of artificial intelligence to manage dosimetry and and by that I mean you know uh, an onboard device, Uh, or I should say onboard AI on a photobiomodulation device to manage things like skin type, melanin content, um, and the individual's actual response to the light, depending on vessel dilation, blood flow changes, temperature changes. Do you think that might have a role in the future as well?
1: Well, certainly skin type does play a role to darkly pigmented skin, you need to deliver more light, because the light that's absorbed by the melanin doesn't actually do anything. Um, but one thing that people are starting to realize, because you know, a lot of people have worked with laboratory mice and rats, which are genetically identical. So every one of your group of mice will behave the same by and large. But unfortunately, people are not genetically identical, and there's a, a huge variation in genotype and phenotype in people. So they respond very differently to photobiomodulation. Yeah, and by and large, it's it's like a bell curve. The, the majority will respond in, in fairly predictable ways, but there'll be a, a small proportion that are like blocks of wood and you can shine light on them all day and nothing will happen. And then there's another small proportion that are hypersensitive. So these are people that are generally sensitive to everything, you know, um, sunlight and perfumes and very, very sensitive to food. And all oh, they're sensitive to everything. And they tend not to be easily treated with PBX. So they generally complain that things did things to them. And in actual fact, if you, if you turn the dose way down, it would have probably been beneficial. They're just like hypersensitive, I think. Mm. So I think it's important to identify the phenotype of the person before you come up with the dosimetry. Now, whether you can get an AI system to do that, I think it would be quite useful if you could. Um, the, the other thing you're talking about is, is real-time feedback. Is there some way you can image something in the skin that will tell you what is going on in terms of blood flow and vasodilation? Well, no, that, that is possible, yes. I mean, with the with the brain, you can, also use EEG, electroencephalogram signals, which respond fairly quickly. So people now are developing headsets that have both EEG electrodes and LEDs in them to put on the head.
0: Yeah, it's it's pretty amazing, all the different directions that uh, folks are pushing into this. Um, I'm excited to see, of course, where things go. It's, we've come a long ways, I think in the last 10 years, but the next 10 years, I imagine will be quite exciting uh, as well. I know in practice when you're trying to evaluate that patient phenotype like you're talking about there, one of the really simple things that we do is we just ask the patient how sensitive they are to us to an over-the-counter medication like Tylenol or ibuprofen, mm-hmm. you know does that you know do you, do you take one and you're it Relieves all your problems. Do um, you have to cut one of those 200 milligram uh, tablets in half? You know, uh, if somebody's that sensitive, then in most cases we recommend starting at a much much lower dose rate and then kind of working up from there. But
1: Absolutely.
0: yeah, so as as a you know we've got clinicians out here who are trying to be successful for their patients with photobiomodulation what are what are some of the the best things that a clinician can do right now when they're thinking about patient phenotype and dosing do we how focused do we have to be on the external dosing versus the internal dosing versus watching that patient as an individual you know where where can we really help the most people by individualizing uh, photobiomodulation parameters do you think
1: well, I mean, I, you know, I think generally the the procedure is you start relatively low and work your way up, because you, what you're worried about is delivering too much. I, I guess it, because you know, an, an awful lot of people, if you start low, nothing's going to happen. So you have to work your way up in order to get something to happen anyway. Um, the question is, how low should you start? I guess because if you start too low, then I guess the, the the uh, subject's going to get discouraged. Ah, this life its not doing anything. I knew it wouldn't anyway.
0: <laughs> right. Yep. Yep. No, that—that's—that's that's a good point. It's and that's a that's a difficult balance to strike. Starting low enough that you don't overstimulate the patient, but at a point where you can expect to see some results fairly rapidly. Because yeah. a lot of patients are already thinking, "Ah, this is hokey. This isn't going to work anyway." Yes. Excellent. Well, sir, I don't want to keep you too long. I'm sure you have other things to do uh, this evening over there. I greatly, greatly appreciate all your contributions on the research side. And thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. And I hope to be able to converse with you perhaps more in the future. And I definitely look for all your publications as they come out.
1: Okay, well, uh, enjoy talking to you, Jason. Thank you for inviting me and good luck to all the laser practitioners out there.
0: Excellent. Thank you so much. And we appreciate your contributions. We'll be talking again soon. All right. And with that, Dr. Hamblin has left the building, as Jocko says. But no, I uh, just want to do a little recap. Uh, it was really exciting to have Dr. Hamblin on. And uh, Christy, you got done listening to uh, our chat there as well. And I just want to do a little capstone to kind of discuss some of the things that we touched on. So the editorial that we are talking about with Dr. Hamlin here, that's linked in the show notes. Give that a read, it's very interesting, but uh, you probably noticed we didn't actually touch on a lot of the points of that editorial. Right. So yeah, um, which, is, which is really interesting. Because the editorial talks a lot about internal dosing versus external dosing and actually when we, we started discussing that you heard us kind of veer away from mm-hmm. the internal versus external dosing and we're talking about the systemic effect. Right, right.
2: I mean, he brought up some great points, but it wasn't, you know, necessarily direction that we were heading, but it's, it's very, very interesting still.
0: Well, and and I think it's a, it's an indicator that, you know, this is a very young field. This is still very much a developing idea of using light therapy to the body. And even something that you might think now, six months later, may be very different. Um, right. Or you may, you may find new things, maybe new findings that really change your mind about what is effective and what isn't.
2: Well, that could, you know, as you know, based on how your patients respond, I mean, you're always learning from from how you do your treatments, and then you can adjust from there. Um, it's a ever-evolving field, and you're just always learning, you know, what happened or what worked before doesn't always work as we move forward. I mean, things change.
0: Yeah, things do change, yeah. And you know, we should be learning. It, it should be a continuously learning process. And uh, when you do see things that work well and you see patterns that work well, that's when it's time to take notice. Mm-hmm.
2: And,
0: and that's what I think, um, that's where I think LTI can really help practitioners out there. We've seen these patterns over the years and we understand them fairly well. But even given that, there's always new information. There's always new data new research that's being published, and to stay on top of that is a lot of work, but it's one of the things that we do pretty well.
2: Right. Well, it's a, it's a full-time job.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is. Yep. Um. You know, one thing that he did mention quite a bit that uh, I think, you know, our LTI members do very well um, is really identifying that patient phenotype in terms of what does that individual respond to well and that is an important step no matter what type of light therapy or really any therapy you're doing what does that individual you know really respond to well how do you individualize your treatment whether it's an exercise treatment um, or or some kind of other physical medicine procedure how do you individualize your approach to make sure that that patient is successful
2: right well, I think you do well at that and you, you teach well that way because you just do great interaction with your patients. You know, you you find out from them how they respond, how they feel, how they did from the last treatment that you gave, that sort of thing.
0: That is something that we teach in the system and the LTI system as well, because that is important. Uh, everybody likes to have a formula where you can just go A, B, C, no matter what. And, and there is an aspect of that in, um, you know, in light therapy and in even what we use here at LTI. At the same time, if you really want to push the envelope and see good results, you need to get in there and have that individualized approach and interrogate the patient and see how they, yeah, exactly like you said, how they responded, what's working for them, what's not working for them, and then knowing how to adapt your laser settings, your treatment schedule, all of that is really a critical piece to go from a 60% success rate to a 90% success rate. Right. Well, it was definitely a pleasure having Dr. Hamlin on. It was enjoyable to speak with him about some of the rapidly changing facets of this field mm-hmm. um, and some of the things that are you know, really just a constant. You know, we know that light therapy works, that it affects the cellular biology of that patient And we know that an individualized approach is going to yield the best results, really. Right. Cool. Okay. Well, thank you, Christy. I appreciate it. And I'll look forward to chatting with you again soon. Subscribe now to keep learning about the growing field of laser therapy. Check out our patient-focused podcast, Healing at the Speed of Light, a great resource for your patients. For massive practice growth and improved patient outcomes, become a certified Laser Therapy Institute clinic. Learn how at lasertherapyinstitute.org.